On this particular night, the night that Jesus was buried, you would have found the disciples hidden in a room. They ran away. They went in a room and locked a door. They blew out the candles, and they talked in very hushed voices because they didn't want anybody to know they were there. The chances of them being caught in the same thing happening to them that happened to Jesus was most likely preeminent on their mind. Being a follower of Jesus Christ comes at a very high price. As a matter of fact, you find it in the book of Acts that Christians were not called Christians. They were called people of the way, the way, because it was a distinct group of people, a new way of living with people with a totally new focus. So Jesus said, if you're going to be my follower, it means dying, dying to yourself. Look with me on the screen at Luke 9.23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That meant something entirely different to the people who lived in the Roman world than what it does to us. To take up your cross was to take up your instrument of death. Look at the definition for cross that Jesus used. This is his word, stauros. This is the definition, a stake, a pole or a cross, as an instrument of capital punishment, your exposure to death. So if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to be willing to be exposed to death. I have no doubt those words were ringing in their mind. Very present, very real experience, knowing that their king had just been put on a stauros, capital punishment. Such a high cost was often too much for would-be disciples, so many of them took off. And the eleven were afraid, and understandably so. There were some who were not quite so afraid, and that's who I want to talk to you about just for a few minutes tonight. Um, His name is Nicodemus, and he's a very prominent man, very prominent in this setting. We're first introduced to him in John chapter 3. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and he's not just a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews, meaning he sits on the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is known as the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is made up of 70 men. They trace their origins all the way back to the time of Moses, when the 70 elders served Moses alongside him. So the Sanhedrin's been in place a long time, and to achieve that position was no easy task. So we find in John chapter 3, this man by the name of Nicodemus coming to Jesus, except he's coming at night, because at this point, he's wearing a mask. He's afraid of what people will think if they know that he's associated with Jesus. So look on the screen with me, John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, you'll find if you read this later today, if you've never read that story before, that throughout the conversation, Jesus never softens his address to to Nicodemus. He comes straight at him and tells him exactly what he needs to put his heart in order. Even though Nicodemus is focused on signs. As you saw last weekend, we talked about the mask in the crowd. The crowd was excited about Jesus. Why? 
because of the signs that they had seen. Superficial. The signs drew them in, and they were excited, thinking he's going to be the conqueror. Nicodemus is repeating the same thing. We've seen these signs that you do. But Jesus is not interested in having a discussion about signs, about miracles. He goes right for Nicodemus' heart, and he points him to what true faith really looks like. Uh, as a member of the Sanhedrin, it, it really is understandable why he came at nighttime. He didn't want to risk the disapproval of the other members of the court because the Supreme Court had already decided Jesus is not one who's accepted in our midst. He's an outcast. Doesn't fit in. So Jesus is not interested in discussing his signs. He goes straight to the real issue, and he tells Nicodemus what he needs. We never hear from Nicodemus again until John chapter 7, and he shows up again. This is where it shows up. John chapter 7, verse 47, the Pharisees are having a discussion about who Jesus is again. Look with me on the screen. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? Meaning Jesus. Verse 49, But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Verse 50, look who shows up. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, meaning visited him at night, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Verse 52, they begin to scold him. They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So now you find Nicodemus, who's no longer in night wearing a mask. He's out in the middle of the day, speaking to the members of the court, broad daylight, He's taken a hit for the kingdom. He's willing to confront his friends. I sense boldness beginning to creep up out of Nicodemus to the degree that he's no longer a nighttime seeker. He's a daytime inquisitor, and he's very purposeful. Now, they make the most demeaning insult they possibly can to him. They tell him, you're not one of those Galileans, are you? That was the biggest insult they could give him because they really hated Galileans. Perhaps he's not yet a disciple. Perhaps he's still exploring, but he's willing to stand up. And God, I see, tugging on his heart. So the mask is beginning to come off, but not yet fully. And so despite the verbal attacks, the insults to his character, this one, Nicodemus, shows up at the cross, the day of the crucifixion you find two Pharisees working together side by side. So think about this. He's gone from one who shows up in the nighttime not wanting to be seen, a member of the Supreme Court, to a daytime confronter in the midst of the Supreme Court, willing to stand up for Jesus. The next time you see him is at the cross, Look with me on the screen. John 19, verse 38. After these things means after Jesus died. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. 
Look who shows up in verse 39. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, which no one had, no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. The Romans refused those who had been executed for sedition against the crown to be buried. The Romans left criminals on the cross to be eaten by the vultures or to be consumed by the wild dogs. They would never allow them to be buried. So that Jesus was buried is remarkable. Now, Jews did not refuse burial to criminals, but they would never bury them in a cemetery with the righteous. They would allow them to be buried out in the desert with the criminals. So we find something remarkable here because Jesus is not buried with the common criminals, is he? And he's not left to the vultures. He's buried with a wealthy man. Do you know that a couple hundred years before Jesus even walked the earth, before crucifixion was ever invented, Isaiah said that when the Messiah came, he would be buried with a rich man? Look with me on the screen. Isaiah 53, 9. Messiah, his grave, was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Meaning he was supposed to be with the wicked men, the criminals, but he ends up being with a rich man. This is a very courageous action on the part of Nicodemus and Joseph to come to Pilate and to take away the body. They're exposing themselves to greater danger than they had ever faced as individuals who wanted to be secret followers of Jesus. They're no longer in secret. They're out in front for everyone to see. Not only approaching Pilate because he'd had his fill of Jewish leaders that day. So they're coming back to Pilate, and they're asking for the body of a man who's been executed by capital punishment. Because why? Because he's a rival king, and they put the name over him, King of the Jews. So they're coming to Pilate, the procurator of Rome, and asking for the body of Jesus. Their allegiance is secret while Jesus is alive. But something happens. They see something that makes them willing to endure the wrath of Rome and the wrath of the Sanhedrin and stand against the norm. So they bury his body. The Sanhedrin had just successfully murdered Jesus, and they're out there in public. I believe this is what happened. I believe when they witnessed the events of the final week, watching what happened from Sunday with a roar of the crowd, all the events that happened throughout the week. Perhaps they were present at the Last Supper because we know there were more than just the 11. Whether or not they were there or not, we don't know, but they witnessed events, and at this point, they're overcome with courage. We've talked a lot about boldness here in this church. What does boldness look like on behalf of the kingdom? You imagine carrying a hundred-pound sack of myrrh and aloe 
to pull a criminal off the cross in front of everyone who said he was despised and rejected, and they're the ones who are going to anoint him, and they're members of the Supreme Court. This aloe and myrrh that's used here is what was used to anoint the body of a king. A hundred pounds of myrrh and aloe is what was set aside for prominent, wealthy individuals, never for a commoner, and certainly not for a criminal. It's very clear to me that neither Joseph or Nicodemus or the women thought that Jesus was going to be resurrected. They would have never spent the time and the money and the energy to prepare a body for resurrection, would they? They were preparing it for burial. So they obviously didn't believe what Jesus said. We're told that his body was placed in a tomb that Joseph owned, a wealthy man, fulfilling what Scripture had promised 300 years earlier, that Jesus would be buried with a wealthy man. Now, it's the end of the Sabbath day. All work will cease. Do you know that Jews did every single thing they possibly could to avoid any contact with a dead body? It excommunicated them from fellowship with other Jews. So here we have the highest, holiest day of the year, Passover. Two guys who are part of the Pharisees, the teachers of Israel, One of them is a member of the Sanhedrin for sure. And here they are holding a dead body of a criminal. You talk about boldness? This is boldness. You talk about picking up your cross and stepping outside of your comfort zone? Look with me on the screen at that verse, Luke 9, 23. If anyone wishes to come up after me, come after me, he must deny himself and take up his instrument of death daily and follow me. I'm going to speculate. I think the turning point for these men might have not only been what they heard and saw the week leading up to it, but the events of Friday itself. So we're going to celebrate communion right now, and I'm going to explain to you some of the pieces that Nicodemus and Joseph had that perhaps that you don't have to make this event as meaningful to you as it was to them. Some of the pieces that they would be able to put together to make them so courageous that they're willing to go out in public as members of the Supreme Court and grab the body of a criminal and prepare him. What they thought was for death But it wasn't for death, was it, church? It was for the resurrection. So let's talk about what they knew that you may perhaps not have known. This is what it says in Luke 22, 19. And when Jesus had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you've grown up in the church, you're very familiar with that. It's what Jesus said at the Last Supper. So Jesus held in his hand some bread. We have it in the form of a cracker that we use every time that we take communion. The bread that Jesus held in his hand is very similar to what you're going to hold in your hand tonight. See how thin it is? It's because it's unleavened. There's no leavening in it. Why no leavening? Because God commanded that when they celebrated Passover, there would be no leaven found in the house. It had to be put out because leaven was a representation of sin. And so they ate unleavened bread, just like you will tonight. First of all, it had to be striped. 
Do you see the burn marks in here? The Jewish people ate bread just like this. There were three requirements for the unleavened bread, or it had to be thrown out. It was not usable for Passover. First one, it had to be unleavened. Second one, it had to be striped. If the stripes were missing, it was not usable. Now that fulfills what was written in Scripture, Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. What did Jesus get on his body when he was beat by the Romans? The stripes of the whip every time. So it's not by accident that Jesus used unleavened bread representing no sin with stripes upon it representing the scourging that he took from the Romans. And here's the third thing. Unleavened bread that had to be pierced. When you pick up this bread tonight, look very closely and you'll see there are holes through it. If it did not have holes in it, it had to be thrown out. It could not be used for Passover. So unleavened, striped, with holes in it, just like you're going to use tonight. At the crucifixion is when the holes were carried out, weren't they? When he received the wounds in his body, so that they will look upon me whom they have pierced, Zechariah 12.10 says. So, verse 20 tells us this, not just the bread, but the cup. Something very significant about the cup that you're about to pick up. Verse 20 says this, In the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So let's talk about the symbolism of the cup before you come up here and pick it up. Always were three cups at Passover, minimum that we know of. First cup was the cup of celebration. This cup was called the cup of sanctification, that God had sanctified them as his chosen people. Second cup is the cup of praise. They praised God that they were delivered from the hands of the oppressors. The third cup is the cup that you celebrate with tonight, the same cup that Jesus held up. This third cup is called the cup of redemption. So you've got bread that's with no sin represented because it's unleavened, that is striped representing the whip on his body with holes in it representing the nails that drove through his skin. And you're going to celebrate with the cup that represents the cup of redemption. Do you see why communion belongs to believers and not non-believers? Non-believers have no comprehension of what this means. Believers understand we've been redeemed with a price, the price of the king of the world. So what I'm going to invite you to do, Michael's going to play some music and we're going to celebrate by coming up and picking up the cup. And so I would like you to pick up the cup and pick up the bread from the tables. And when you do, there'll be someone at one of these four tables, up in the balcony, down below, here in the front. And when you pick it up, someone will be there to say to you, this is his body and blood. And take it back to your seat with you, and I'll talk you through the rest. So at the point when you're ready to get up, go ahead and do so.